1: Visit
0: bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., Copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer.
2: And I'm Aura Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
0: One of the tropes about Americans that tends to be true is that we love our cars. Is it the design of cities and suburbs that created the need for them? Or did the passion for them drive those designs? We examine why the love affair will only grow deeper.
2: And did you ever watch Squid Game? The hit series was framed around a contest where one wrong move would cost a player their life. Now, amidst a growing demand for unscripted TV, Netflix is spinning this off into a reality show. But first,
1: After several weeks of negotiations, Israel has agreed to a hostage deal with Hamas that will see the Palestinian group release some of the roughly 240 hostages that it is holding in Gaza. It captured them uh, during its rampage in Israel on October 7th. It has been holding them ever since in a network of underground tunnels.
2: Greg Carlstrom is our Middle East correspondent.
1: The agreement, which the cabinet approved overnight, uh, has brought a bit of hope to the families of those hostages who have been furious with the Israeli government for not striking a deal sooner. It will also bring a bit of much-needed relief for 2.2 million civilians in Gaza in the form of at least a four-day truce in the war. But it doesn't mean the war is over.
2: Greg, tell us about the terms of this deal.
1: Hamas has agreed to release about a dozen hostages each night for four days, for a total of around 50. In exchange for that, Israel is going to release three Palestinian prisoners for each hostage that is freed. So probably 150 Palestinians will be released from Israeli jails. There's also a provision that says if Hamas releases additional hostages uh, beyond the 50 that it has agreed, for every 10 that it releases, the truce will be extended by another 24 hours. Along with all of that, Uh, There is a plan to allow 300 trucks with humanitarian aid to enter Gaza each day. That's up from about 45 trucks on average that have entered every day over the past month. So a significant increase in humanitarian aid going into Gaza. Uh, Again, we don't know the exact start time yet, but could happen as early as Thursday.
2: And how did this deal all come together?
1: It took lengthy negotiations which were mediated by Qatar, the small Gulf state that hosts some of the Hamas leadership and has a good relationship with the group. Talks about the hostages started within days of October 7th of the the massacre that Hamas carried out in Israel, where it abducted these 240 or so Israelis.
3: Uh, About an hour ago, uh, two American citizens held by Hamas since October 7th uh, were released. These two Americans nice. There were a couple of
1: initial breakthroughs where Hamas released a mother and daughter who were dual American-Israeli citizens, and then also released two elderly women that it was holding in captivity. So this was a sign both to the Israelis and to the Americans who were involved in these talks that Qatar could play a role as mediator. After that, though, on October 27th, Israel began its ground offensive in Gaza, and that slowed down the process. At that point, uh, Hamas said it was willing to negotiate to release a larger number of hostages, but only if Israel agreed to a multi-day pause in the fighting in Gaza. And so uh, there was a lot of back and forth about exactly how many hostages and exactly how long the truce was going to last, Uh, and those talks finally came to fruition when the Israeli cabinet voted at about three o'clock in the morning uh, Jerusalem time to endorse the deal.
2: What do we know about the hostages being released? How exactly will this happen?
1: We don't have a final list yet of who will be released. What will happen is every day Hamas will give a list to the Israelis of the 12 or so hostages that are meant to be released that night. They will be taken to the border between Gaza and Egypt, where they will cross over into Egypt, and then they'll be brought back into Israel via its land border crossing with Egypt. Once they're in Israel, they'll be identified by Israeli authorities. They'll receive medical treatment. And some of them who have foreign citizenship may be also repatriated to their home countries. There are among the hostages at least 10 Americans who are still unaccounted for. There are 25 hostages from Thailand who are thought to be migrant farm workers who were working in the agricultural communities in southern Israel. A significant share of these hostages have dual citizenships. At the same time, the Israeli government is going to put forth a list of Palestinian detainees who it plans to release. There are uh, thought to be hundreds of teenagers in Israeli jails. Uh, And that is one thing right now that is delaying the implementation of this hostage deal, is that because it requires releasing Palestinian prisoners, there is a 24-hour window in which people in Israel can challenge the deal at the Supreme Court, Uh, So that 24-hour clock will end on Thursday morning. And I don't think the court will give much weight to those challenges. But uh, there is this period in which people do have the ability to petition the court to block the deal.
2: And what does all this mean for Gaza?
1: First, it will mean a much-needed break for more than 2 million people in Gaza who have been through now uh, almost seven weeks of daily bombardment, airstrikes, shelling by the Israeli army. And it will bring a bit of relief to what is a dire humanitarian situation. Before the war, on a typical day, 500 trucks carrying food, medicine, other basic essentials, crossed into Gaza from both Israel and Egypt. The crossing with Israel has been shut since October 7th, and the crossing with Egypt is just not set up to handle large volumes of aid. So there are widespread shortages of food. Families are skipping meals. They're struggling to find clean water. Hospitals have run out of basic medical supplies. We've talked to surgeons who say they have to operate without anesthetic because they haven't been able to get any from across the border with Egypt. So these 300 trucks a day that will enter with aid, they will bring a bit of needed relief to Gaza. But only a bit. This is meant to be a four-day truce. The Israeli government, the Israeli army have said very clearly that once those four days end, they plan to resume fighting. They plan to expand their ground operations into southern Gaza, where the Israeli army hasn't really sent ground troops yet. And so I think it's a needed break for people in Gaza, but it's going to be, unfortunately, a very short-lived one.
2: And what has the Israeli government had to say about the deal so far?
1: There have always been two goals for Israel's war in Gaza. One of them is to secure the release of these hostages. The other one is to remove Hamas from power in Gaza. And Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister, was very clear that that latter goal of removing Hamas remains in place. After the deal was announced, he said the hostage deal was just one stage in a multi-stage war, and he said that war would continue until what he called absolute victory.
2: How is this being received by Israel's allies?
1: I think there will be pressure both outside and inside Israel to extend this truce into a longer ceasefire. Starting with the international outcry, most of the world has called for a ceasefire. 120 members of the United Nations uh, endorsed a resolution calling for one. The entire Arab world is united in demanding one, and even some of Israel's Western allies are pushing for one as well. Uh, The one person who is not so far is Joe Biden, and there are no signs that he is looking at this as a precursor to some kind of a longer ceasefire. He, in both public and private comments, has been aligned with Israel on the idea that Hamas has to go, that it has to be removed from power. So uh, I think we're going to see in the coming days during this truce a big international push to try and prolong it. But Uh, I don't think America, which is, of course, Israel's most important ally, is going to do that. There's also going to be some pressure from within Israel, from the families of those hostages who are not being set free in the coming days, to try and extend the truce, try and perhaps lower the level of bombardment in Gaza so that it doesn't risk killing hostages. They're going to want the Israeli government to keep negotiating, even as the Israeli government also wants to keep pushing ahead with a expanding military campaign to try and remove Hamas.
2: Greg, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you.
0: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. Good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move.
3: America is more car-reliant than any other country.
0: Simon Rabinovich
3: is our U.S. economics editor. It averages about two cars per household.
0: When are you getting your first luxury car? American Motors says you can do it today. See the. Amb-
3: this in turn is linked to many problems. Higher rates of obesity, it's bad for the environment, suburban sprawl hollowed out city centers but despite all this more americans are in effect opting for car dependent lifestyles they're moving to the suburbs as they have been for decades but now more than ever more than 50 percent of americans are now suburban we
1: live a decent kind of life the people who laid out this place didn't forget that air and sun are what we need for growing whether it's flowers or babies just watch us grow
3: Now, you could argue that the criticism of cars is really a classic case of elite opinions diverging from mass preferences. The elites think of cars or suburbs as something that's quite awful to be avoided. But the revealed preference of many Americans is that they quite seem to enjoy cars and suburbia.
0: I know I like them or certainly used to before moving out of America, but let's get to it. What's the underlying cause here? Why do Americans love their cars so much?
3: Well, I suppose you could say it's sort of a chicken and egg phenomenon in the sense that because people like cars, cities are designed with cars in mind. But because cities are designed with cars in mind, people basically need cars in America. American cities have basically been configured for motor vehicles for a century. Cities feature very wide roads, lots of access to expressways, parking spots galore. Recent research supported by the World Bank looked at road speeds in 152 countries around the world. Compared to other wealthy countries, America is really far ahead of the pack. Its traffic is roughly 27% faster.
0: Whoa, why is that? Why so much faster?
3: Well, it really gets back to this point about how Americans like suburbia and they like smaller towns as well. So if you look at other OECD countries, it's a group of primarily rich countries. American cities tend to be about 24% less populous, but they also cover a lot more area and they do have larger roads. That lets drivers zip around. Many people might think of New York City and its gridlock. That really is an outlier in the American context. There are many, many more cities that are like Wichita, Kansas, or Greensboro in North Carolina. Drivers in these cities rarely face traffic jams.
0: But what about public transport? Doesn't that figure in, at least in some American contexts?
3: Well, it does, and clearly for moving lots and lots of people in very compressed areas, public transport is far preferable. It's better for the environment, it's more affordable, and you can move a lot more people in a small space of time. Having said that, the car-first design of American cities has actually made them very accessible to a very large geographic area, more so than what's common in Europe. So there was an interesting study earlier this year by economists from Yale and elsewhere looking at what they deem to be accessibility zones, so the areas that can reach city centres. And the general conclusion was that European cities are much more accessible by public transport, but if you want to use private cars, the area that can reach a city centre in America is much, much bigger than the area in Europe. Now, as an important caveat here is that European cities' housing tend to be a lot denser, so there can be more people within these so-called accessibility zones. But I think the point is that you have Americans who live in far-flung homes who can actually quite easily get to city centres. The negative is people talk about downtown cores being hollowed out, and that certainly is a truth in many, many American cities – the flip side is that for people who are in the city center, it's relatively easy to get out to their slightly larger homes on slightly quieter streets. But it's not, I think, as binary car versus mass transit as people sometimes make it out to be. So clearly, given the sprawl of America, it's going to be hard to build the kinds of subway systems or commuter rail systems that are more common elsewhere in the world. But the fact that America has such a good road network is actually potentially quite a useful thing. Roads are a shared resource. they used often for cars, but they can equally be used for better bus services. The study by the economist from Yale, in fact, found that at longer distances, bus-based transportation in America is actually roughly comparable to what exists in Europe. So there could be a lot more investment in buses, a lot more investment, especially in bus services in poor city centres, but American roads are therefore a valuable resource.
0: On balance, for all these reasons, historical, geographical, topographical the American love affair with the car isn't going anywhere?
3: It isn't going anywhere. That said, there are a lot of things that are in flux. Many people clearly do not love their cars. Young Americans especially, they're driving less than older generations. Partly that's out of concern with the environmental impact of cars. It's certainly a vogue trend in cities these days to try to build more walkable, denser neighbourhoods. And we're seeing places, especially New York City, talking about having congestion charging. At the same time, a hundred years of car dependence is not something that's overturned easily overnight. And then I think also changes to lifestyle after COVID, in some ways seem to favor cars. People are going into offices less, they're traveling around cities at less predictable times. Many have moved into mid-sized towns further away from core urban centers. All that is very bad for public transportation. Ridership is down, revenues are down. So if anything, the convenience of having a car at your disposal becomes even more important in this post COVID, somewhat more dispersed America. So car dependence, for critics of it, sad to say it's not going away. If anything, I think it's going to be woven even more deeply into the fabric of America.
0: Simon, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason.
4: Squid Game is a hit television show which was released on
2: Netflix in 2021. Rachel Lloyd is our deputy culture editor.
4: It originated from South Korea. It tells the story of a contest between hundreds of players who are vying to win a massive jackpot of money. There are umpteen challenges and one that really took off on social media was called the Dalgona Challenge which involved extricating a shape stamped into a bit of honeycomb with a needle. It was fiendishly difficult to do. One contestant starts whimpering, he's stressed, he's sweating, he's red in the face. The honeycomb cracks and he's shot in the head. Squid Game is Netflix's biggest ever hit, even a couple of years after it was broadcast. Subscribers spent 1.65 billion hours, the equivalent of almost 190,000 years, watching it in the first month after its release. When you fail, you lose your life. But in Squid Game The Challenge, a new reality TV spin-off starring real people, that doesn't happen. The first installment of the show is released on Netflix today. The idea is that how people play the game tells us something about them, whether they're ruthless, whether they're generous, whether they think of someone else. But the show is also revealing about a number of trends in television.
2: So before we get into those trends, Rachel, tell me, what's different about Squid Game The Challenge?
4: Well, the crucial thing is that Obviously, contestants don't die when they're eliminated. They are strapped with an ink pack that explodes, which grimly mimics the effect of a gunshot, which is quite startling when you first see it. Oh, shit. The stakes are still significant, though. 456 people from across the world are vying to win $4.56 million.
1: Let the game begin. Stephen
4: Lambert, the chief executive of Studio Lambert, which co-produced the show, describes it as the largest, most ambitious unscripted show ever produced. And for anyone who's not familiar with the terminology, unscripted refers to things like game shows, dating programs, but also documentaries and true crime.
2: And you mentioned that this spin-off reveals several trends in TV more broadly. How? In the first case, it shows how dominant
4: reality TV is. When you think of television, you often think of shows like Succession or House of the Dragon or The Crown. Lavish, big production, prestige dramas. But actually, the television industry is highly dependent on unscripted television. It's ubiquitous mostly because viewers love it. In America last year, shows like American Idol and The Voice and Jeopardy were among the most watched. And they're popular because they don't really require viewers full attention. The idea is that the contestants are challenged not the viewer. You can watch them while doing your ironing or putting your kids to sleep or whatever it is.
2: And what about the people
4: who make these shows? What's the appeal for them? Television executives like unscripted television mostly because it's cheap to make. Squid Game The Challenge is an outlier to this. Each episode costs well over a million dollars. But generally, they're in the hundreds of thousands, even for primetime shows. In the first half of this year, almost 70% of the shows commissioned worldwide were unscripted. Reality TV was given a bit of a boost by the actors and writers' strike because people couldn't make scripted dramas. People who were usually focused on making them had to turn to reality fair out of necessity. And we're seeing that the zeal for exploiting intellectual property, which we've seen on the big screen for quite some time think of all the Star Wars and Marvel spin offs that's now happening on the small screen too. Give me some recent examples of that. So a recent example is Amazon's 007 Road to a Million. It's not had great reviews, but it's a competition show that's James Bond inspired. And that's because Amazon acquired MGM, which owns James Bond a couple of years ago. But we've seen for a long time that formats that are successful in one country are often exported to another. So Big Brother is a great example of that. That started out in the Netherlands and now it is produced in 67 different countries. MasterChef, an amateur cooking show, now has nine spin-offs, including ones for children and ones for professionals. And it's not really surprising, therefore, that Netflix has tried to leverage the interest in Squid Game. On TikTok alone, the hashtag has more than 83
2: billion views. Well, fair enough. MasterChef Australia is definitely way better than the original. Rachel, what about the way in which the series is being released? What does that tell us about TV trends?
4: So Squid Game, the challenge, is being dripped out in three batches. And that really tells us that streaming companies in particular are looking to retain their viewers. By dripping out content rather than releasing it in one big deluge, the hope is that people will stay subscribed. Media companies are looking to make their offerings more profitable. So it makes sense that if you get people hooked and then you release the content slowly, they'll stay with you. I want to see in Squid Game, the challenge, whether a mother and son pair can win the jackpot between
2: them. Well, I might have to tune in myself. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show and of all our new subscriber-only content by getting in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And remember, you can get a free trial for Economist Podcast Plus by following the link in our show notes. Go on, and then when you have, have a listen to our most recent episode of Drum Tower, our podcast on all things China. Enjoy, and we'll see you back here tomorrow.